0: Last time we spoke about the defense of Finchaffen, Finchaffen was an enormous staging camp for the allies now. The Japanese could not sit by idly, allowing such a strategic location to remain in allied hands. General Katsugiri launched a major counter offensive, kicked off with signal fires coming out of Sanelberg. He sent a force of raiders to try and neutralize some heavy allied artillery, but it all ended in failure. Having not neutralized their big guns, the rest of the counteroffensive fell to pieces. The Japanese would officially report 422 killed, 662 wounded. For the Australians, they had 228 casualties, of which 49 were deaths. With the counteroffensive done with, the Allies now would go back on the offensive. The next large target was going to be the stronghold of Saddleberg, But the Japanese were not going to make it easy on the Allies. But for today, we are actually going to be jumping into some new places. This episode is the Invasion of the Treasury Islands. Welcome back to the Pacific War week by week podcast. And I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. Before we begin, I just want to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and so much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fallen Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube. I've just released a wacky episode on what if Godzilla actually attacked Japan in 1947. And please check out my Patreon account at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel for more exclusive podcasts. For quite some time now, we've been focusing on New Guinea, such as the offensive against Finshafen and the Ramah Valley. But today we're going to enter a new phase of the Pacific War. With the incoming invasion of the Gilbert and Marshall Islands, the Northern Solomons, and Western New Britain, General Douglas MacArthur and Admirals Halsey and Nimitz were going to turn up the heat. Admiral Halsey had just seized Villa, Baracoma, Munda, and Rendova, gaining their valuable airfields for the forces of General Twinning's souls to utilize. Within the Central Solomons, Bougainville was finally within range of allied land-based aircraft. Ley, Salomau, and Finchaffen were taken. Thus, Operation Cartwheel would begin its new phase. Back over in July, plans were formed for General Vandegrift's 1st Marine Amphibious Corps to seize some airfield sites at Buen and Kahili, the important Japanese anchorage at Tonoli Harbor, and the Fazi and Balal Islands in the neighboring shortlands. That same month, the 43rd and 37th Divisions were involved in the New Georgia campaign. Of the five divisions remaining under his control, Admiral Halsey planned to use the fresh and unbloodied 3rd Marine Division and the Army's 25th Division for the invasion. He sought to keep the 2nd Marine Division and the 3rd New Zealand Division in training for the conquest of Rabaul. Yet things had changed. Because of the intense resistance on New Georgia, the 25th Division had to be committed. Then the decision was made to strike Makin and Tarawa in the Gilbert Islands, so this removed the 2nd Marine Division from Halsey's South Pacific area. These changes ultimately dictated he would need a substitution, and it was to be the 37th Division who had just suffered 1,100 casualties on New Georgia already. Nevertheless, the 37th was in better condition than the 25th. The 3rd Marine Division's task went unchanged. Major General Alan Turnage's 3rd Marine Division was going to be the spearhead of the invasion of Bougainville, with a launch date set for September. On top of this, Halsey had received some reports indicating the Japanese were heavily reinforcing the Shoreland Islands. He decided to bypass them. He was going to hit the Treasury Islands and Choiseul. It is also possible Halsey sought to perform these actions, hoping to lure out the Japanese fleet into a major engagement. The Treasury Islands at Choiseul were lightly garrisoned, but held airfields that could be turned against Bougainville. Meanwhile, General Douglas MacArthur was planning the next stepping stone towards the Philippines. His overall plan was to break the Bismarck's barrier through a series of aggressive leaps along the New Guinea-Mindanao Axis, New Guinea, as we are all quite familiar with by now, is a logistical nightmare. It has lush jungles, raging rivers, very cold high mountain peaks. It has like every type of geographical nightmare that you could think of. Thus, to traverse the western landmass of New Guinea was not exactly something desired. What MacArthur's logistics team sought was to secure the 50 mile expanse of sea lying between New Guinea and New Britain. With that in hand, Admiral Barbie's 7th Amphibious Force would be able to transport troops along the coast, a significantly easier method than having the poor boys battle through the jungle. Rook Island split the sea into the Vitaz Strait and the narrower Dampur Strait. General Wooten's 9th Australian Division were currently fighting for control of Vitaz but there had been no effort to date to hit Dampur. MacArthur decided to capture Kaving and then the Admiralty Islands because they represented enemy aerial threats against his westward push through New Guinea. Closing in on the end of the year, he also planned an amphibious assault of Cape Gloucester, the northwestern point of New Britain, which commanded the Dampur Strait. In hindsight, the wisdom of landing troops at Cape Gloucester seems rather dubious today. It wasn't necessary to seize the point in order to make use of the Vitas or Emperor Strait. The Japanese did not have any big artillery on the western end of New Britain to command the channel. The island's infrastructure was largely underdeveloped. The only real way the Japanese could have interfered with the Allied use of either strait was by torpedo boats something they really did not have much of. There was, of course, aircraft based on New Britain as well, but that would be neutralized by Kenny's airsoles. MacArthur planned to have the airsoles hit Rabaul continuously to seize the Green Islands, the Admiralty Islands, and Kaving. The western New Britain operation was codenamed Operation Dexterity, which would be subdivided into operations Lazaretto and Backhander. There was to be a staggered attack first hitting Gazmata, performed by the 2nd Battalion, 228th Regiment. They would establish an air base in the southern coast of the island. This was Operation Lazaretto. For Operation Backhander, this would be the invasion of Cape Gloucester. Some of the landings could be carried out in November, but MacArthur chose to wait until the new airfields were established in the Markham and Ramu Valleys, as they would provide close air support for the amphibious operations. On September the 10th, Admiral Halsey sent staff to present his plan for the invasion of Bougainville to MacArthur's staff. Halsey would be surprised to find MacArthur opposed using all of their aircraft to strike Rabaul before the invasion of Western New Britain. Instead, MacArthur proposed to continue heavy airstrikes against all Japanese airfields on Bougainville throughout October. Then in late October, Halsey's forces could occupy the Treasury Islands and possibly Northern Choisel. Northern Choisel could provide radar coverage and a PT boat base. On the 1st of November, Halsey's forces could then begin landing on Bougainville to form a beachhead before constructing a new airfield to host the Air Souls so that they could hit Rabaul just in time to take some pressure off MacArthur's troops advancing in New Guinea and New Britain. Thus, MacArthur was determined to make the main goal of the operation not the secureance over the entirety of Bougainville, but just a portion of it where an aerodrome could be established, then that could be used to batter Rabaul. From all of this, Halsey was presented two options for his landing site. First, there was Queda Harbor, sitting on the northeast coast, and then there was Empress Augusta Bay on the southwest coast. Kita Harbor seemed the better location from which to launch airstrikes against Rabal. Keda also held a protected harbor, requiring Halsey's forces to move up the longer outside passage to secure Choisel first. Empress Augusta Bay was on an exposed side of the island during an approaching monsoon season. It was closer to Rabal and would only require the securing of the treasury islands first. After further reconnaissance, there were indications airfields could be constructed midway up the west coast of Bougainville, at Cape Torokina on Empress Augusta Bay. Halsey chose it for the landing site, stating on September the 22nd, It's Torokina! Now get on your horses! The new operation against Cape Torokina was codenamed Cherry Blossom and its task was handed to the hero of Guadalcanal, General Vandegrift, who formed the plans but would not be the man to lead the operation. Vandegrift was promoted to commandant of the Marines, the first serving Marine to become a four-star general, and he had to depart for Washington. His replacement was Major General Charles Barrett, the former commander of the 3rd Marine Division. Barrett was given the command of the 1st Marine Amphibious Corps, and responsibility over the upcoming Operation Cherry Blossom. His mission statement read this Land in the vicinity of Cape Toroquina. Seize and occupy and defend a beachhead including Torada Island and the adjacent island 3,750 yards west of Cape Toroquina, allowing approximately 2,250 yards inland from the beach and 3,600 yards east of Cape Torokina, to prepare and continue the attack in coordination with the 37th Infantry on arrival. However, the mission statement was to be his last major contribution to the war. On October the 8th, Barrett accidentally fell from the third floor of the officers' quarters at Noumea, and he suffered a cerebral hemorrhage. He soon died afterwards and it was recorded as an accidental death. But there was heavy speculation it was in fact a suicide. Thus the job now fell to Major General Roy Geiger, the director of the Marine Aviation Corps in Washington. For the naval aspect of the mission, Halsey had to do with what he had on hand. He would not be receiving any significant naval reinforcements because Admiral Nimitz feared that any vessels lent to the 3rd Fleet would not be able to come back in time to help with the incoming invasion of the Gilberts. What Halsey could count on was Task Force 38, commanded by Rear Admiral Frederick Sherman, built around the carrier Saratoga, and later joined by the Princeton. He also had Admiral Merrill's Task Force 39, comprised of Cruiser Division 12 and Destroyer Division 23, and Task Force 31, commanded by Admiral Wilkinson consisting of three destroyer squadrons, some transports, and covering ships. It would be up to Admiral Wilkinson to bring over the 3rd Marine Division, the 1st Brigade, and 3rd New Zealand Division to invade the Treasury Islands. Rear Admiral George Fort would take the reins of the 1st Offensive, and Wilkinson would personally look over the Torokina landings. Wilkinson would have 12 attack transports and amphibious cargo ships for the landings just enough to get every echelon of the troops and their equipment over. The 3rd Marine Division was reinforced with the 3rd Marine Defense Battalion, the 198th Coast Artillery, the 2nd Provisional Marine Raider Regiment, and the 1st Marine Parachute Regiment. After landing at Cape Torquina, they would later be reinforced by General Beitler's 37th Division, The 29th, 34th, and 36th New Zealander battalions of the 8th Brigade Group, led by Brigadier Robert Rowe, would hit the Treasury Islands and help establish long-radar radar radar stations and a landing craft staging area. There was a final last-minute change to the overall plan made by Halsey. They decided not to attempt seizing Northern Choisel, but instead to send a marine raiding party of around 656 to a possible 725 men, of the U.S. 2nd Parachute Battalion, led by Lieutenant Colonel Victor Krulak. It was hoped this action would persuade the Japanese to divert forces to Choiseul from southern Bougainville. To support the operation, General Kenney's 5th Air Force would smash the airfields in Rabaul, while the Air soul's 489 aircraft would hit airfields in and around Bougainville. General Twinning's tactics were to harass the Japanese every single day, so he launched a total of 158 flights in October, comprising 3,259 sorties, and land and naval targets were hit in Kihili, Kara, Balal, Buka, Bonus and Choisel. The result of this incredibly large air campaign was five Japanese airfields being pulverized, 136 enemy aircrafts claimed destroyed, and all at the cost of 26 Allied aircraft being shot down. Meanwhile, on October the 12th, Kenya launched a raid using 349 aircraft, smashing airstrips, shipping, and supply dumps. The 6,000-ton Nigerian destroyer Maru was sunk alongside two smaller craft during this. On the 18th, 54 B-25s took off from Dobudura, but only caused some minor damage that day. On October the 23rd, 24th, and 25th, some daylight raids consisting of 45 B-24s, 62 B-25s and 61 B-24s, respectfully, managed to shoot down nine enemy planes, destroyed 25 aircraft on the ground, and damaged another 27. On October the 29th, he tossed a raid at air airdrome using 41 liberators covered by 75 P-38s. They managed to destroy around 10 aircraft. The enemy's attention was most certainly diverted away from Rabaul because of all of this. Now, the Japanese knew an invasion of Bougainville was coming. They believed the main target of such an offensive would first be against the Shortlands, or Kahili. General Kanda's 6th Division was deployed to reinforce such places. His 1st Battalion, 45th Regiment, was placed at Kita. The 3rd Battalion and 4th South Seas Garrison was sent to reinforce Bougainville, while the rest were sent over to the Shortland Islands. The Japanese divided Bougainville into a north, south, east, and west sectors, garrisoned by numerous forces under Kanda. Admiral Koga also launched Operation RO, a plan devised to strengthen Rabaul. Koga's intelligence indicated the Pacific Fleet was on a warpath, so he decided to take the entire combined fleet from Truk to inu which Koga considered a good advanced position where he could sortie and annihilate the enemy in a decisive naval battle. The combined fleet stayed a week in the uncomfortable and lonely lagoon, having failed to find that decisive naval battle against the Pacific Fleet. By October the 24th, the combined fleet traveled back to Truk, while the air crews of the carriers Zuikaku, Shokaku, and Zuho reinforced Rabaul. 82 Zeros, 45 Vals, and 40 Kates, and 6 Yokozuka D4Ys, reconnaissance planes, were sent over. 192 trained air crews in total would be in Rabaul by November the 1st. They came just in time to intercept one of Kenny's raids consisting of 75 B-25s and 80 P-38s. The Japanese airmen claimed to have downed 9 B-25s, 10 P-38s, and all at the cost of 20 aircraft and three small vessels. Koga alerted the 12th Air Fleet, who were in Japan at the time, to prepare to head over to Rabaul but instead of sending the 8th Fleet, he kept them back, because he still believed a decisive naval battle would be on the menu very soon, but in the Central Pacific. General Sakai's 17th Division were then transported to New Britain in late September. Their first echelon comprising of the 53rd Regiment arrived on October 5th and immediately began to move west to reinforce Cape Gloucester. The 3rd Battalion went to northern Bougainville. The remainder of the 17th Division would arrive between November the 5th and the 12th, though the auxiliary cruiser Kurita Maru carrying the 1st Battalion, 81st Regiment, was sunk by the USS Grayson. The Japanese lost 1,087 men aboard her. It was very tragic. The invasion of the Treasury Islands was codenamed Operation Good Time. They would establish a staging area an advanced naval base at Blanche Harbour, and a radar station on the northern coast of Mano Island. It was hoped the assault on the treasuries would confuse the Japanese as to where the major effort would actually be. At this time, there was a short supply of assault forces throughout the Pacific, and the Bougainville invasion was mere days away. Thus, it was difficult to comprehend why an entire brigade would be used to subdue such a tiny enemy garrison on a small island. It has been theorized that Halsey and Vandegrift were reluctant to use some untried New Zealand troops in the more ambitious undertakings, but were also under pressure from their Anzac allies to see some action. For whatever reason, the Treasury Island operation would be one of the few examples of Allied overkill during the Mid-Pacific War. The 8th Brigade had limited shipping available to them, they would have 8 destroyer transports, 8 LCI's, 2 LST's, 8 LCM's, 3 LCT's, and 2 APC's under the command of Admiral Fort, who was using the USS Rattan as his flagship. The 34th Battalion was going to land on the northern side of Stirling Island to secure a nearby airfield. The 29th and 36th Battalions would land abreast near Falami Point on southern Mono, and Major George Logan's D. Company of the 34th now designated the Logan Force, would land at the mouth of the Santa River to establish a radar station with the help of 20 seabees. The USS Pringle and Philip would perform a bombardment to help out. The operation was set into motion on October the 27th when the convoy departed Guadalcanal and the Russell Islands. George Force destroyers approached Blanche Harbor during a storm and they began their bombardment. The assault waves raced through to the harbor in two columns. And, as was suspected, the 34th met absolutely zero resistance. They immediately went to work sending out patrols to make certain if there were any Japanese on the island that they would not get the surprise on them. Mortars were set up on the nearby Watson Island, and it's cool to know that there is an island out there with my name on it. This was done to support the landings on Mano. The landings on Mano met very little resistance basically just a bunch of scared and surprised Japanese naval troops who offered some half-hearted resistance using some machine guns before withdrawing. The New Zealanders went to work establishing a perimeter as the Japanese began opening fire using motors, which managed to knock out two LSTs, killing two and wounding over 30 men. Interesting to note, this was the first amphibious assault launched by Kiwis since the horrible Gallipoli campaign of 1916 and it was the second combat operation undertaken by Kiwis during the Pacific War. The real resistance would come in the form of an air raid consisting of 25 valves who bombed the beachhead and support ships. The USS Connie took two hits, eight crewmen were killed, and ten were wounded. An Allied fighter patrol managed to shoot down 12 valves during the raid. To their north, the Logan Force faced no difficult landing at the mouth of the Sanatala River, They quickly formed a 150-yard perimeter and began working on the radar station. By the end of the day, all but one LST had successfully unloaded and cleared Blanche Harbour. However, during the night, the New Zealanders tossed back numerous counterattacks, particularly around the Savick River. By the 28th, the Japanese survivors were retreating north in the hope of escaping to Bougainville. But along the way, they ran into the Logan Force. On October the 29th, during the late afternoon, 20 Japanese attacked the western part of the Logan Force's perimeter. They were easily beaten off with motors and rifle fire, leaving five dead Japanese behind. The next day saw some intermittent firing against concealed Japanese positions. Scouts eventually figured out there was a large number of Japanese to the west of the perimeter, but the area between Sanatalu and Malassi was clear of enemy. November began with the rest of the brigade coming over. The radar station was already set up and running, and the Logan Force had built themselves a small blockhouse near the landing barge. That said, blockhouse immediately became the objective of the Japanese, since it represented the only hope of them escaping the island. As Brigadier Rowe's men began to occupy the central and northern parts of Mono, the Japanese began to infiltrate the Logan Force's perimeter. On the night of November the 1st, the main breach was made across the New Zealanders' line. A ton of Japanese had infiltrated the lines and managed to cut some telephone wires from the blockhouse to the company HQ. Soon after this was accomplished, a concerted attack was made against the blockhouse. Six New Zealanders and three Americans defended it. They had automatic weapons, some 50 and 30 cal machine guns, but they were soon put out of action by the attacking Japanese, who could have numbered something between 70 to 100 men. The fight for the blockhouse would continue until dawn, with the surviving defenders beating off numerous attacks, mainly by tossing grenades. Captain Kirk and Sergeant D.D. D. Hannafin were both killed during the fight. Command of the blockhouse then fell to a cook of D Company, Private J.E. Smith. By daybreak, the Japanese finally were beaten off, as the three remaining survivors were left wounded. Twenty six Japanese had been killed trying to overrun the blockhouse and seize the landing craft. Elsewhere across the perimeter, the Japanese attacked throughout the night, seeing another 15 dead Japanese in the western section and 9 in the east. It was to be their best chance at taking the blockhouse. For the next few days, their attacks were much smaller, and by November the 4th, New Zealander patrols were fanning out and killing or capturing the stragglers. The last significant action on Mono would be on November the 6th, when a dozen or so Japanese were routed from a cave during a two-hour firefight east of Saunatalu. Operation Good Time resulted in the annihilation of a Japanese garrison roughly 200 men strong, but it did come at a cost. 40 New Zealanders and 12 Americans were killed, with over 174 wounded. The Allies got their supply bases and a radar station for it all. Over on Choizal, Operation Blissful was about to kick off. In an attempt to make the Japanese believe the Short Islands were the actual target for the offensive, General Van tossed Lieutenant Colonel Victor Krulak's 2nd Parachute Battalion, roughly 656 men, at a beach near the village of Voza. On October the 27th, the men and their equipment were loaded onto eight LCMs during the night, and paratroopers were transferred over to four destroyer transports, the Kilty, Ward, Crosby, and McKean, the very same ships that have just been used to transport the New Zealanders for Operation Goodtime. Fort's destroyers provided escort as the paramarines landed at Voza, shortly after midnight without any resistance. During the morning of the 28th, they began unloading supplies from the landing crafts that had just been concealed on a smaller island offshore. Once landed, they carried them up a narrow trail leading from the beach to a mile northwest of Voza upon some high ground, which would be their first base camp. Nearly a hundred friendly natives helped the marines carry the equipment up the beach. They also helped guide the men. Allied radio broadcasting finally alerted the Japanese to the imminent danger to southern Bougainville as Krulak's men were establishing their perimeter. The morning of the 29th brought an enemy strafing attack upon them. The native guides reported to Krulak that there was a barge staging base at Sangigai, the main Japanese position on Choisil Bay, garrisoned by around 150 men. Krulak decided that this was to be the first objective. He sent out patrols going north and south. In the north, Lieutenant Averill, with some help of native guides, discovered some considerable evidence of the Japanese presence. There was abandoned equipment and rations, but they found no Japanese. Crullock led one of the patrols personally and managed to surprise some Japanese who were unloading a barge. They killed seven Japanese and sunk the barge before pulling out. The other patrol group ran into a Japanese platoon and got into a skirmish, seeing another seven dead Japanese. Thus, Krulak got his confirmation there indeed was a Japanese base at Sangigai. Early on on the 30th, Krulak requested an airstrike and it arrived at 6 a.m. Twelve Avengers with 26 fighter escorts hit Sangigai. Unfortunately, some of the planes mistook the Marines at Vaza for the enemy, and they strafed them as well. No Marines were killed, but one of their boats was sunk, and that boat was needed for Krulak's plan. As a result of the boat getting sunk, Companies E and F departed Boza overland to hit Sagagai. A Japanese outpost along the Vagara River opened fire on the paratroopers, but it was easily overwhelmed. Krulak then divided his forces to perform a two-pronged assault. Company E, led by Captain Robert Manchester, would advance along the coastline to hit the Japanese from the north, while Krulak with Company F would move further inland to hit them from the rear. Company E quickly advanced along the coast and began shelling the town with motors and rockets during the afternoon, only to find out that it was completely abandoned. The Japanese had taken up a new position on some high ground in the interior, so the paramarines began destroying and looting the village. Meanwhile, Company F was advancing through rough terrain to try and secure some high ground near Sangagai, where the retreating Japanese were just about to pass through. The Japanese literally walked right into F Company, an hour-long fight soon broke out. The Japanese outnumbered F Company, and as Krulak would later report, the outcome appeared to be in question, until the Japs destroyed their chances by an uncoordinated banzai charge, which was badly cut up by our machine guns. 72 Japs were killed, and an undetermined number were wounded. Marine losses were 6 killed, 1 missing, and 12 wounded. Krulak was wounded as well as F Company's commander, Spencer Pratt. The Japanese did suffer a devastating 72 casualties. Back over at E Company, after plundering the village, they came across some documents, and Krulak would report. The one that fascinated me, it was a chart that portrayed the minefields around southern Bougainville. When I reported this the night after the Sankagai attack, I saw my first flash message. I'd never seen one before. I came back and said, transmit at once the coordinates of the limits of the minefields and all channels as shown going through it. So we laboriously encoded the critical locations and sent them off. To an armada going into the area, this is not incidental information. This is necessary information. Halsey in true Halsey fashion was not satisfied to know where the minefields were. He, before the Torokina landings, sent a mine lair there and dropped mines in the entranceways to those channels, and they got two Japanese ships. E Company then retired to the Vagara River and was later evacuated by boat back to the Vosa area. F Company followed suit but was delayed by the heavy engagement they had. The men had to stay and bury their dead. The friendly natives reported a Japanese concentration to the north near the Warrior River. So Krulak sent a strong patrol up by boat to check it out. On November the 1st, the large patrol of 87 paratroopers from Company G, led by Major Warner Bigger, headed north by landing craft towards Nukiki, with orders to destroy the southern outposts of Choisel Bay, and if possible, to shell the Jap supply depot on Guppy Island. Major Bigger began an overland march along the eastern bank of the river, and after crossing the warrior, their native guides became lost, so they had to bivouac for a night. In the early morning of November the 2nd, Bigger's men found themselves completely surrounded by Japanese, who began infiltrating their perimeter from the rear. Bigger had the men continue north along the beach, where they surprise attacked a small enemy outpost of just four men. They managed to kill three out of the four, but the last men ran away. Thus, the element of surprise had gone. Bigger knew the jig was up, and he could not hope to attack the main objective, so instead he ordered the men to go shell Guppy Island. G Company set up some 60mm motors in the water and fired 143 rounds at the island, setting up two large fires, and one looked to have hit a fuel dump. The Japanese were taken by surprise there. They only offered resistance in the form of some poorly directed machine gun fire bursts. On the way back, G Company had to fight their way through because of the infiltrators. Krulak knew that this was a dangerous situation, so he alerted a PT boat base at Vela La Vela. Lt. Arthur Birdson had five PT boats under his command there. Two were already assigned to other missions. Another was under repair. PT-59 only had a third tank's worth of fuel, but her commander, one Lt. John F. Kennedy, yes, he is back in action, he agreed to rescue the boys. Kennedy believed he had enough fuel to at least get to Choisel, and another boat could tow them back if they ran out. Despite overheating the engines, at around 9.30 PT-59 escorted a small convoy to Voiza, and Bigger's men were offloaded. PT-59 then ran out of fuel on the return trip down the slot and was towed back to Lambu-Lambu Cove. By this point, the landings at Cape Torikina had been carried out, so a diversion was not really needed anymore. Furthermore, the Japanese were moving in on the base camp from all directions. On the night of November the 3rd, just in the nick of time, three LCI's from Vela la arrived to successfully load Krulak's paratroopers and get them out of there before dawn of the 4th. Paratroopers had been outnumbered 6 to 1. They managed to kill an estimated 143 Japanese, destroyed a major staging base at Sangagai, sunk two barges, and destroyed a considerable amount of enemy fuel and supplies on Guppy Island. The cost was 13 dead and 13 wounded. Krulak's after-action report mentioned evidence that the Japanese had sent reinforcements from the Shortland Islands to counter the Choizal operation. On November the first, the day of the Cape Torokina landings, the Japanese had sent a large bomber force south to Choizal, hunting a reported task force. The Japanese found nothing, and by the time they diverted back to Empress Augusta Bay, the landings were already done. American fighters were ready to deal with them at that point. It seems the Japanese had been greatly confused from all of the activity around Bougainville, particularly from many intercepted messages. It's hard to say how successful the Choisel raid actually was, but it is possible the Japanese fell for the diversion, but no one will really know. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. So please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash Generals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube. Over there, I'm just about to release a podcast I did with Flashpoint history on the Doolittle Raid. Also, please check out my Patreon account at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel for more exclusive podcasts. The diversionary raids may or may have not had an effect on the landings at Cape Torakina. Regardless, the multiple operations were all successful, and the Japanese seemed none the wiser. Now the Stranglehold over Bougainville would begin.